Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that claims the shortest distance between point A and point B does not require a detour. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Today's guest might seem at first out of keeping with the character of this podcast, which is about bootstrapping and making direct connections, but I'll argue otherwise, as you'll soon hear. Dalton Caldwell is the head of App.net, which is sometimes called ADN. App.net seems to be a Twitter competitor, but it's not quite. It seems to be a venture-backed startup firm, but it's not quite. There's a lot more under the surface of App.net that we'll talk about in this podcast. Uh, Dalton, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Glenn. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be a part of it. It's great to have you on. And I, I, in the intro, I was saying you're not quite what you're not quite what you seem because you know the if you look at the bare characteristics of what you're doing, you have uh, you received you know, millions of dollars in funding from a venture capital firm. You're uh, you know you've got this model that scales. It looks like you're uh, David going up against a Twitter Goliath, but that's all sort of true. But it's not really your story. Your story. Uh, started back with Pick Please. That's right. I mean, I know it started even before then, but with this, what developed in this was Pick Please. Tell me about what Pick Please was, because that's the that's the journey that takes you. That's the far, first part of the journey that takes you to App.net. Sure. So I'll try to I'll try to summarize the story. I mean, uh, the first company I started was called iMeme, which um, was around for about eight years. I started it when I was twenty three, and we were a venture backed music streaming site that was ad supported. And so one of the big ironies for me talking about app.net is that we sold a great deal of advertising. We did over $2 million a month in gross <laughs> and uh, went through all the difficulties of changing our API, removing features, having user revolts, all that fun stuff <laughs> I've seen, um, honestly, from the other side. And after that was sold in a not great way to MySpace about two and a half years ago, uh, maybe it's three years now, we, we started a company called Mixed Media Labs with me and my former CTO, Brian Berg. And the goal of Mixed Media Labs was to build mobile applications. This is gonna, I know this is hokey, but uh, we noticed at iMeme that all of our growth was coming on mobile, right? Our, our iOS app was introducing all of our new users, and our website became less and less um, used. And so, well, you're not you're not alone in that, of course. Obviously, too, right? As Facebook right. is facing this trouble. Like everybody in every yes. space, suddenly mobile became this huge thing, and a lot of people were really behind on being able to provide tools or have the tools to make mobile apps. Exactly. And so that was the, the genesis of the company was, hey, I don't know what we're going to build exactly, but you know, given that we're starting from scratch again, we're going to do nothing but mobile development, and we're going to try to make sense of Android, and we're going to try to make sense of iOS because it seems like all. The next generation of what's interesting is all going to happen on mobile. So what we decided to do was start from scratch and go from me running a 100-person company to running a two-person company. <laughs> and I, I learned how to code uh, Python, which I did not know how to write before. And we decided to start writing some applications. And my, my insight was that there was a hole in the mobile photo sharing market. Uh, so I wrote this app called Pick Please with Berg. And um, we launched it about four months before Instagram launched which is kind of funny. And, uh, you know, it, it was cross-platform. It was on Android and iOS. Um, it had filters. And for a variety of reasons, it did not end up being uh, the big winner. But it felt good, actually, to know that, that we did a good job of predicting what people were going to be wanting. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, we, we predicted market demand pretty well, but didn't actually execute on winning the market. And that was a that was a more uh, I must say conventional company in that you had uh, the idea you were a lean startup and you got uh, you went out and got venture capital yes. investment in Pick Please because you were maybe of the mindset then that this was going to need to scale and you'd need the money to be able to handle the hockey stick when it suddenly went viral. Well, it was actually to raise money 
because we could. Mm, mm. <laughs> so you know, you know the philosophy that when you need a loan is when they won't give it to you. Um, do you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Like with the bank. Uh, and so the idea with that is to actually give us enough time to figure out the model. And really, my pitch was: I'm not sure if this is going to be the thing that works, but I think there's going to be a lot to do with monetization. Like monetization was the key part of my pitch. And if you go look at my press from that era, that was what I thought that would be most interesting about that sector. And I got frankly, really disillusioned and burnt out when I saw color come out. Yes. <laughs> and As and, did we all. Color seemed like – I thought the entire internet was going to die then because it was – what they get? $40 million yeah. for something that wasn't even instantiated and then completely has sort of crashed and burned since besides owning color.com as a domain or something. And what's interesting is I knew Bill Gwynn. I competed with him at my last company. So I knew him pretty well. And I don't have anything else to say about that, but it was like, oh man, not again. Um, <laughs> so I became incredibly disillusioned. And so we decided to spin off PickPlease and found a team that wanted to run it. And we focused solely on tools to help app developers distribute their apps, <laughs> right? Like, so we noticed that one of the things that made Instagram and these other viral things work is that they were using, they were bootstrapping off of social network traffic to drive installs and awareness and they got they managed to get the viral loop going. Yeah. And so we were building tools to make it much easier for small indie devs to push traffic from the social web through the app store and vice versa. And if I remember part of your narrative here too is I'm sorry your narrative this is your Go own ahead. story yeah. but part of it is that <laughs> is that you when you were developing PickPlease and then these tools this is um there's a little bit of uh, I was talking to 37 Signals uh, Jason Freed uh, not long ago and this is what happened there too is they started as a design firm and they built a tool for their own purposes and they said wait a minute the tool we made for our own purposes is greater than the sum of what we've been doing we should focus on that and that became uh, 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 Basecamp and Campfire and a lot of other stuff they're doing uh, in your case you were building social networking tools for other developers. You were building social graph connections and all the infrastructure that you needed, but you were envisioning this in kind of a different way at the time. Yes. Like the idea at the time was, it seems like you need to correctly leverage social graphs from Facebook and Twitter to actually make something happen, right? Like there's so many apps in the app store. How do you ever break out? What's the difference between a winning app and a non-winning app? What are the properties of that? So the idea was building all the pieces to, to help devs be successful uh, financially, right? That was our reason for existence. Um, so as part of that, we ended up building deeper and deeper integrations into Facebook and Twitter. And so what's funny is I was considered a pretty, one of the more well-known third-party Facebook developers and was invited to speak at a few places about the Facebook platform because we were using all the hot, cutting-edge new Facebook platform features like Open Graph and what have you, and trying to apply it for doing app distribution. Um, and so up until about six months ago, uh, hilariously enough, we were, you know, we were working really, really hard on building on top of Facebook and Twitter to try to make third-party developers successful on those platforms. Because that was tricky, and it still is tricky, is that in, I think this is one of the things you encountered is that Twitter and Facebook tolerate outside parties until they're no longer useful to them. And at one point, it was different. Twitter and Facebook needed these parties to build traffic. But now that they've siloed their users away, they've locked them in there. Third-party developers are now a necessary evil in the most part. It's opposed to um, like a welcome addition. And once you get into any situation, as we've seen with Twitter especially, but also with Facebook, where there's any competitive friction, the API changes the, um, for our less technical users, the interface that programmers use to access these services, the application programmer interface 
changes and the terms change also. And suddenly all the work you've put in may be for naught. And it sounds like you wound up on the doorstep of that, of that situation not very long ago. That's correct. So we, here we are. We spent all of this time. We were, got all the support from the Facebook developer team. Um, we built something by the book that people inside of Facebook said was wonderful. Um, so, you know, like we, we did it. We weren't sketchy trying to leech traffic out of the platform. We were by the book, what you're supposed to be. They're going to feature us. They love what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And was extremely disappointed when we were told that, never mind, they're actually going to build an identical thing to the thing we were building. And what, what, we're, what we were working on on top of Facebook was a way to see what your friend's favorite Facebook applications were. You know how people like to post their home screen? Yeah. It's, it would be a way where you could see... Um, you know, what trending apps are coming up that your friends are using and do sort of a word of mouth thing. And they basically said, oh, we're going to launch App Center, which is exactly like that. You guys should just come work here and you can work on that. Right. And I was extremely disappointed. And simultaneously, this is when the Twitter API crackdown happened. And I felt that there was a huge hole in the market for all that I wanted as a developer, which was a social graph, identity service, open platform for my company to build on top of. And I felt the door had been slammed in our face and in a way that really bothered me. And I looked around and I saw, you know, a whole bunch of people in the exact same boat that we were in. Let, um, let me sidetrack for just one second, sure. which is the social graph is a term that I don't, it's not a technical one, but I think it gets thrown around a lot. Define the social graph and sure. you know, what that means in terms of, of Facebook, Twitter, and what, you, what you're doing. So if you're going to be doing, if you're going to be building an app on a social platform, one of the most valuable things you can get is the social graph. And that is who your friends are, slash who you're following, who follows you back. Um, so if you look at the way a lot of these apps have grown, like during the Vine launch, um, remember they had the feature to find friends on Facebook? Yes. And, and Facebook, <laughs> Very and Facebook managed to sh- shut that down within three hours of Vine's launch. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, Twitter has, has shut down that functionality. They shut that down for Tumblr, as I recall. And they shut it down for Instagram too as well, right? Because if you the, – and the, the thinking there is – actually, this is interesting when you see Flickr did the same thing. It has not been shut down because I think Yahoo is maybe not seen as a competitor on the social graph. But the problem these companies have is that if they let you aggregate your social graph into someplace else, even if it still belongs to them, it provides easier movement for people in and out of different services or different social services. Um, it doesn't keep you stuck in one like Facebook or Twitter. Exactly. Right, like the platform lock-in is what they believe is necessary for their continued existence, and there's nothing scarier. I mean, if you look at the analysis of the Instagram acquisition, if you looked at the growth rate and the degree to which they sucked out the social graph of Facebook and Twitter, understandably, that was pretty scary and needed to be bought mm-hmm. as fast as possible. Yeah, right? yeah, because like, they were creating, they created, they could have created almost a parallel universe there, in which Instagram could then have started adding other features on top of it, right. and competed directly with them. That is an existential threat. Right. And so it makes sense why Facebook made the moves that they made. Yeah. And this comes up again and again. I mean, this was the Netscape Microsoft thing is Netscape was a browser in the 90s. And Microsoft looked at it and said, this is not a browser. This is the thin edge of a wedge of a platform because they're getting all the users. And if they only need the browser, and they don't need our stuff. Then all they have to do is find a hardware maker and build a thin Netscape, which is exactly what Google did with Chrome OS. Really. Yes. But all they have to do is build a thin thing. So Microsoft put all of its efforts to suppress and destroy Netscape in a you know variety of provably illegal and illegal methods after all the lawsuits were settled. But there, that's the same thing, I think, right, with Instagram. And that's the same threat that these companies 
seem to be constantly defending themselves against is once you get that wedge in there, the moment you get uptake, then suddenly you're no longer a service. You're a platform and you can have users and you can make a billion dollars. That is correct. And or, so or we, spend a billion dollars. <laughs> what, we're, what we're ending up with is, is I feel like everyone's been digging trenches, getting ready, and the bullets are just now starting to fly. But in the platform wars between you know Google+, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, everyone's trying to build up their huge mass of user data, their, their own social graph, and they're effectively all trying to sell to the same advertisers, right? If you think about what their business model is, it's acquire as, many, as much page view inventory as possible, get the best data they can to do advanced targeting techniques. And um, they, at the end of the day, every one of those companies wants to sell the same product to the same brand, to, to Coca-Cola or to Pepsi or General Motors, right? That's, that's the big brands that everyone's catering to. So they're, they're fighting each other. Um, you know, they're, they're all fighting the same game. And this is where you said this is sort of the uh, – it's not unilateral dis- disarmament, but there's that issue about um, like if you play the game Go, for instance, part of the strategy of Go, I think the more advanced you get, maybe this happens in chess as well, is that you have to start playing a different game. You're playing it – you if you're playing the same game, you're going to lose. So you start playing either a different level or you are using pieces in such a different way that you're disruptive because people are playing the one game that have no idea what you're doing or what you're doing appeals to a different – you know, if we bring away from the game metaphor appeals to a different audience. And when you talk about product, the product that these companies are all trying to sell to Coca-Cola and everyone else, the product is users. They're trying to sell user eyeball impressions and behavior in order to reach those people and cause them to do actions. Correct. So you hit this point, you hit the wall with Facebook and said, uh, threw up your hands and said, what are we going to do? We have all this code with the big platforms, Twitter's locked down, Facebook has just co-opted or, you know, it's parallel development of exactly what we're doing. The moment of uh, deepest despair. It's the you go up to the mountain and what, what tablets did you bring down <laughs> from there? Well, well correct. And, and as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Instagram at scale is a thin edge of a wedge. And given that the code I had was PickPlease, which looks a lot like Instagram, we effectively had a bunch of code written that had millions of users <laughs> that, that, was, that looked a lot like, at least on an API level, it looked like what you would need to build a replacement social graph. And so when I was working with the music business, when I was 23 and 24, my thesis was the same as a lot of people that I read on the internet, <laughs> that the people in the music business are dinosaurs that don't get it, that aren't smart, that don't know how to run their own businesses, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just the, the typical angry internet commenter. And once I ended up spending a lot of time dealing with the music business and dealing with true record label execs and meeting the people that truly ran the music business, I realized that I was wrong and that there's definitely problems with the music business, but it's not because the human beings running it are dumb. <laughs> it's because their financial motivations are creating, creating their behavior. And so like in, in your business, if we look at the page view wars that are going on right now with the Huffington Post aggregation and you know, just like all these crazy debates about stealing other people's content and copy and pasting and the future of news, I mean... It's not that the people doing the aggregating are necessarily bad or the people or the old companies are bad and that everyone's dumb. It's that I would argue that the economics are driving behavior, right? So this is a mentality that I took with me, which is that the music business wasn't bad. Their business model was bad. And it's, that- it's the interest. There's an alignment of interest thing, right? Is that the music industry 
uh, you know, fundamentally, if we, if we want to be the least cynical about it, you could say they would really love to get music in people's hands. So there's people who work in A&R, you know, aquas, uh, yes. in the division that get acquire new musicians, get them recorded, all that. There are tons of people in the music industry, and I've met many of these people at all levels, yes. who do love the music. If we posit that, let's say, even everybody in the industry loves music, and some people love money as well, it's still... Even with that, the interests aren't aligned for them to make it most efficient to get music in the hands of users at the lowest possible price. Their interests are to sell the same music over and over and over again because the user is, you know, and to sell the user to other people as well. They don't have um, the alignment. And it sounds like you'd come with that same conclusion. Facebook and Twitter, the user is the product. And so the interests can align between what the user wants, like privacy and features and reliability and um, you know, robust marketplaces or whatever, and the interests of these social networks. Yeah, I mean, one of the more memorable things that ever happened to me in the music business days was meeting with uh, with Lior Cohen. Do you know who Lior is? I don't. He he ran Def Jam. He was one of the original. He managed the Beastie Boys. He's one of the most famous people in the music industry. And so I'm in a room with this really scary guy. (laughs) And he's yelling at me and blaming me for having to lay off. He's like, I have to go lay off 500 people. And it's kids like you running these sites that I'm going to have to go lay, you know, I'm going to go have to lay off a 40-year-old sound engineer and it's your fault. And the thing that I realized about the mentality was like that actually worked on me at an emotional level and I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way. So his mentality was I have a spreadsheet and this spreadsheet needs to add up to a certain number. And if it doesn't, I have to lay people off. And so if you look at these social companies, if you look at the pressure Facebook is under to hit their IPO numbers and the pressure Twitter is currently under to go IPO, like you've seen, you know, you read all the press, there's a spreadsheet with a number in it yeah. and they need to hit it or bad things happen. I think there's, a, there's a, even a very obvious example now too, which is if you kind of go in advance of the social networks, Groupon, Living Social, uh, did I just see recently Living Social's had its yeah. value written down remarkable about? And those, I mean, that's the leading edge of that problem is that they are pure advertising essentially. There is no, I mean, there's a social component, but they don't even pretend really have any meaning except deals and commerce. So you can strip all of the photo sharing and friendship and everything out of Facebook and say Groupon. And it is not a sustainable model because of that pressure you described. They can't, they have to be getting these multi-digit uh, uh, month-over-month increases. Yes. And there simply isn't enough space in that kind of thing they're doing to make it happen. And so there, it is already collapsing the House of Cards. And it will completely collapse probably and be reformed in something different. I think you're right. And again, having been through that with, with iMeme, I mean, when you're running a company and there's tough decisions to make, but you have to hit your numbers – you will do what it takes to hit your numbers. If there's, <laughs> if there's collateral damage from your decisions, so be it, right? It's, you have people's jobs are on the line. And so again, like, this is how I relate. This is why I don't demonize people on the other side of these things is I've, I've been there and it, you do what's right for your business and you do what it takes to hit numbers. And so, so look, so the app.net philosophy was I had no delusions that if we started something like this, with the exact same business model that looked exactly like these other companies that no matter how good my heart was or whatever, it would invariably look exactly the same. And so what is the point of that? And you'd already been through the ad sales market. You knew about that. You saw what was going on. And there's a finite amount of money that's getting divvied up. Um, I mean, even as money's being shifted out of conventional uh, broadcasts, local newspapers, all those markets, the money's shifting, but it doesn't mean that there's an infinite amount to be claimed. I mean, again, I think Groupon and some of these other firms prove that the pie – 
is only a certain size. You can't grow the advertising pie as much as it's shrinking because of efficiency. I mean, yes. the dollars uh, in newspaper print have become pennies online. So you have maybe a shrinking efficient pie and everyone's divvying the pie up to thinner and center slices. So instead of eating pie, you're making cookies or, or you know, that's right. maybe the wrong metaphor. But you came to – this is what's fascinating is at this stage – You've got this new idea. You obviously have the support of your investors. It's uh, Andreessen Horowitz, and as one of the investors, one of the fellows there is on your board. Mark Andreessen has said very positive things all along about what you're doing. So yeah, you he's, have your investors behind you. He's one of you. my mentors, honestly. Uh, he, I've had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with him, and that's made a big impression on me. Right? I think his, the 2010s his, are Mark's time, like the 1990s and the 2010s, because there was a period of time when he was a voice in the wilderness because I think he didn't buy into the huge valuations. I mean, he did well. I was Skype. There were some other things he was involved with as they transitioned. But I think uh, I think Mark Andreessen is one of the um, most underrated investors and futurists that we've had because he was saying things at the wrong time. And yeah. now <laughs> in 2010, 2011, 20, I mean, the investments are paying off the long-term thinking is paying off and things that he said 10 years ago are now finally turning out to be true once we've gotten over the hump of unreal valuations and and impossible marketing again. I mean, we went through the dot-com crash. We went through like another wave of that that's still, I think, collapsing now in part and and uh, and he's there. But so you have your investors behind you and you know, he understands what you're up to. And uh, the traditional point thing at this point for a lot of companies would be to say, we need to get some more money so that we don't burn through what we have, and we have the basis under which to go to this new direction. You said that, but instead of going back to investors and saying, we need another X million dollars, you tried crowdfunding. And I thought that was where this story started for me. And I was like, who are these guys? <laughs> and why is a company with conventional investment, you picked crowdfunding as your method. How did you come to that decision? So imagine me coming up with this idea and, and talking internally about having a paid social platform. So so the metaphor here is we're going to not be in the ad business. We're going to play a completely different game. And if this looks more like a hosting company, right? So the best example there that I mentioned in the in the first blog post is Dropbox, right? Mm -hmm. With Dropbox, you don't it's not like one day they're gonna say, hey, you can't export your files, Glenn. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know, like these are actually ours now. That would be problematic with us. Right. That would, yeah. You know the idea of hosting has been around for, for a really long time, right? And with hosting, you're paying for a service and you do with it what you will. And there's radically different financial incentives. And, it, and I'm the first to admit there's downsides to those incentives, but it's just a different incentive. So all these weird social graph battles or third-party access battles don't make a lot of sense in a hosting provider metaphor. Your job so, is suddenly to keep users happy because they're the one yes. who's paying you and there's nobody between. This is where we get to the, the podcast theme yes. too is that, I mean, the crowdfunding we'll talk about in a second, but it's that there's nobody between you and the user. And if you don't keep the user happy, they don't subscribe, they don't tell their friends and your subscription revenue starts to plummet. Exactly. So you asked why crowdfunding and I, and I mentioned that because we're sitting here talking about it and – I'm not sure if it's the stupidest idea ever <laughs> or the best idea ever. And I realize that there's a good chance that this is one of those strange ideas that sounds good that will get zero adoption. And that if it's just a science project and that to build something for developers and build something for users with these properties, if I'm the only person that cares about it and there is no market for this sort of platform, what's the point, right? 
Like you're illustrating. This is the thing that I always say about Kickstarter, <laughs> Indiegogo, and crowdfunding. I'm so glad you said this because I feel I'm not a voice in the wilderness at all. But I think it it's overlooked. Is you're voting. People are voting with cash on your idea. They're not just saying, yeah, we like it, or someday we're pledging for the future. They're actually saying, this idea is worth money to me, and my vote is $50 or $100. That is exactly right. right? My belief was, what would be so hard about this, and I'll, this is one of the big things I've been thinking about to the conversations we're going to have in a minute, is this is a bootstrapping problem. right? For instance, eBay is a great idea, but getting eBay off the ground sounds really, really, really hard, and I don't know how they did it. Right. Um, Airbnb is a great idea and at scale, you can be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I see why that works. But if you know the Airbnb story, they spent like a year and a half designing cereal boxes. Do you know this whole story? Like they were- No, I've talked to them, but I knew, I know the, the company was founded because they were trying to, someone was trying to find a room at South by Southwest and they did Craigslist and they couldn't pay. They had some problem with like money and they couldn't pay the host they were staying with. And it was this whole thing, we're like, okay, we have to figure this out, but I don't know the cereal box part of it. So, well, basically they, they built it and it looks almost, it did exactly what it does now when it's successful, but no one used it. And so they did this whole cereal box gimmick that got them on CNN during the presidential debates. Um, they ended up designing cereal boxes and selling them so that way they had enough rent to, to oh survive. Like, oh God, it was not great. glamorous startup scene. Um, and so my point is they had exactly the same product they had now, but the chicken and egg issue of bootstrapping that market was so difficult that they, you know, rational people would have quit and shut it down yeah. um, a year or two in, right? <laughs> it was just that those guys kept with it and so they, they deserved their success. But basically bootstrapping a market is really, really hard. And if the idea makes sense at scale, that does not mean that you're going to be able to start from zero and get to where the thing starts to get interesting. No, this so, is a fundamental problem you're bringing up and it comes up again and again, right? Is that is, uh, in fact, I know there's a photo service uh, founded by a foreign boss of mine in Seattle that didn't take off. And part of it was they were trying to get to that scale and they try to leverage with social networks. They did a lot of things, but you know, if you have zero users and you invite family and friends and you get hundreds and maybe thousands, you know, through an extended network, but you really need something to bring people back again and again, and you can't get from 5,000 to half a million or whatever that magic number is, you need something compelling. You need a reason to get people in there and you can't always rely on mimetic success. Yeah. And so, so if you recall, we had the number of 10,000 users and where that, that number came from is uh, Paul Graham wrote a blog post about this Mm. and his blog post was, um, what was it? Frighteningly ambitious startup ideas. (laughs) What He was describing Google and how Google, whether they realized it or not, when they had 10,000 power users using it, like if you're in the know, Google was like what the super tech geeks used. The amount of work it takes to get them for them uh, from zero to getting 10,000 people that are like super in the know to use Google was actually, I think he said in the blog post, 80% of the way to IPO. Mm-hmm. And his thesis is that getting that first 10,000 committed group of people um, that are using it because it's actually better and that are like, that the product was good enough to capture their imaginations, that was the hard part. And so scaling up from that to, you know, what Google obviously turned into was 
was actually fairly easy compared to getting that first 10,000. I'll testify to that too, because I was uh, looking at my logs one day in, I don't know, late 1990s, I was running a web startup and um, hosting firm and development firm. And uh, all of a sudden this back rub uh, URL starts to show, or referral (laughs) starts to show up. And it's like, what are these guys doing? And I write them like, oh, we got this project. And then slowly, you know, very, I should say slowly, very quickly, they have their public side of it and uh, people start telling me about it. I start using it. And I was, you know, the internet community was relatively small in the late 90s by today's standards. But very shortly, every person I knew used Google instead of AltaVista exclusively because it was vastly better. And I looked around and said, oh, this is this is something. I was maybe 99. I can't even remember. Yep. So, But you could tell it was palpable because everyone you knew talked to you about it if they were that kind of user, yep. which meant that – all of those kinds of users were telling like a thousand people about it and we didn't – you know, we had Usenet or something. We didn't have Twitter then to spread the news uh, about this great thing we found that was so far superior we'd abandoned something we'd been using for three or four years. Exactly. And so so the thesis is how do you get that first – like can you get that first 10,000 people that – you know, can you capture their imagination? And the hard part about app.net is that we have a – doubly difficult situation because the thesis relies on needing third-party apps to exist. What a crazy (laughs) chicken and egg problem. Like we initially weren't even going to build the alpha website. That was the plan. But then everybody said that this was vaporware and I was a charlatan. So that's nice. um, Isn't that nice? (laughs) So um, it was like, okay, well, we'll build this website in two weeks just to show you this API is real and that we're capable of building software. And so that ended up working well, um, at least from dispelling that particular issue. But you've got to have apps to have an ecosystem of users. Oh. oh, I see you're thinking now. So it was, you, need, you needed apps, you needed that 10,000 users, and you said, how do we connect these two things together? Yes, it's a two-sided market, mm-hmm. is, my, is my opinion, is you need both, right. else, or else you have chicken and egg problems. I mean, I remember reading this interview with Fred Wilson a couple of years ago talking about Twitter, when someone asked him why Twitter did not go down a developer-centric path. And he said, well, if we were going to do that, we should have stayed in beta with app developers and not launched until the app developers all built a bunch of apps. Hmm. I'm paraphrasing. I can send you the link, but he said, you know, he said that on stage. We'll he put was it like, in the show hey. notes. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> he was like, yeah, if we were going to do, you know, if that was the Twitter plan, what we would have done is um, waited for apps to get built on top of it and then launch with those. And so I thought, you know, that's a pretty good idea, Fred. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's take a good that point. Run with that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think he was trying to be facetious, but he, it was actually a good insight. Let's take a break from the podcast to thank one of our sponsors. Kiwi is a full-featured app.net client in a super simple package built just for Mac OS X. Kiwi packs in all the best features of app.net, like private messages and inline images, into a clean, simple, and easy-to-use app. Keep your Twitter friends in the loop with Twitter cross-posting. And a unified timeline option lets you choose to see all your mentions and followers in a single view. Download the app at kiwi-app.net. You'll find a link on the episode page, too. Thank you, Kiwi. Now, back to the interview. How many months ago was this now? I can't even remember. Was this last, it was 2012, right? It was the middle yes. of 2012? It seems like an eon ago already. I'm sure it does for you, too, the number of yes. hours you've worked since. But crowdfunding as a concept, you know, I keep almost every conversation I have with people, not every, but almost comes down to some aspect of it. And I've worked, I was talking to my friends, the angsts uh, on one of the podcasts about uh, tidbits and take control books that we've worked on. And we hit, I think something you did too, is we looked at platforms that are out there and, and Indiegogo and Kickstarter being the two biggest of, of this sort of nature. 
got nothing against them. I love Kickstarter and I, and I will hopefully be launching a book at some point again with Kickstarter because it handles so much of the transaction. But if you already know how to handle transactions and you're trying to tie users directly into your system, you're selling a user account, which is one of the things we're doing at Tidbits, and you already know how to process credit cards and you already know the rest and you want to have everyone bound in and, and not own the customer, but you want that direct relationship with them. Kickstarter without physical rewards may not be the best way and you have all the systems in place. You'd built pick, please. You built all these other things. So going with Kickstarter didn't make sense for you. You built your own front end to this thing to, uh, to process um, people's desire to pledge to be part of, of what app.net was going to become. That's correct. I mean, for one reason that was not, a lot of people, I would say 99% of people don't understand, um, was that from the Kickstarter terms of service, as I read it, we technically couldn't have used them anyway because it says no web businesses. It says it in there. So I know there's been some stuff that looks like a web business that they somehow have approved, but... Yeah, Penny Arcade is a good case because Penny Arcade sold... What they were offering was to remove ads from their site, but they weren't selling access to the site. And there's also, it's yep. supposed to be a project and yours was an ongoing thing. You get That's a membership correct. and you get a year's worth of membership from pledging and that might have met. But, but yeah, Kickstarter is more aligned around, yeah, yeah, they're more aligned around products and more about specific time delimited things as opposed to ongoing. But, and you, and you had the technology. Why give someone else a 5% cut uh, and pay 5% for credit cards if you can do it for two or 3% yourself? Yeah, and also we built the username claiming system, which I would argue was important. Mm -hmm. It would not have worked with Kickstarter. Uh, I don't know how we – I mean, maybe we could have hacked something together, but being able to have it work the way it worked um, was much easier to do from a custom development perspective. You know, I just encountered a, a situation like this recently. I'll just sidebar into this where uh, there's a company called RunRev that is uh, – they've got a, a hypercard-like scripting language that um, a lot of Macintosh people like, and they're – want to revise their code base. They just launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise, I think, $500,000 to fund turning into a new code base that's open source, fully commented, beautiful code with a with both a commercial license you can obtain for them and a free license, depending on whether you want to go closed or open source from development point. And people said to them, and there's a lot of criticism happening right now, like, why should we pay you to develop this, what you should have been developing it all along from all your commercial stuff. You want to go open source, go open source. Did you get feedback like that? People said, why should we give you money to build a network? Build a network and then we'll decide if we want to pay for it or not. Why are you doing a crowdfunding thing? You know, this isn't a barn we're raising. Um, look, I got every number of interesting feedback. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know how to summarize uh, some of the feedback I got. Um, well, what's the scale from full-on hatred trolling to pleasant responses somewhere in that Yeah, I've, uh, I've never actually experienced anything like that. What were right? people like, so angry about that you thought, not that was justified, but that wasn't just invective? Like, what was, is there a nub of people saying, like, what was the thing that, because I saw so much anger about it, and I couldn't explain it either. I'm like, these guys aren't, telling you have to give them money. They're asking for it to build a certain kind of thing. What was the, I mean, I know that I should say that one of the issues was people talked about it as an issue of discrimination and access, which we could talk about in a bit. And I've talked about in other forums, but leaving that specific issue aside, what made people so angry about this approach? I think it's that people knew what the problem was, right? Like we could all name what the problem is with the siloization of content and with the rise of Facebook and you know, death of the open web, et cetera. Like everyone, everyone's in violent agreement about that. Yeah. But when someone actually presents a... <laughs> Sorry, laugh, but it's true. When, so, when someone presents a, um, a fully refined end-to-end -end concrete proposal, it gets ripped to shreds, right? Like there's a reason why 
there has not been you know fully distributed open source aspects or there hasn't been the equivalent of smtp like the if you if you look at like in the open source community on the linux mailing list or things like that even on something where everyone is aligned about what problems are if they have different ideas about what something should look like and what its properties should be it can get really toxic right you we were you're talking about usenet a minute ago think about the flame wars <laughs> back in the day and and what was that saying like um the lower the stakes the more oh people God. flame. I, f- I forget what the quote was, but like. It's perfect. Yeah. Here's the thing is you guys had, what surprised me though, is you had an API, you had developers within like days. I mean, it wasn't, it, it was stunned me that people were so angry about this because what they seemed to say was if we give these people money, it's going to fail. And I, but at the same time, like there people are giving them money. So it doesn't matter if it fails or not. Like I'll, I'll give you guys 50 bucks because I want to see if it succeeds and $50 is worth it to me to see what's going to happen and to claim a name early on because these guys actually have the background. They have the ideas. They got an API. This isn't like we're going to build something in the future. It's like we have code. We're going to open it up. We're going to support developers. It seemed to be to me, you were saying all the things, but it was that idea that people should pay you for the right or pay you to encourage you to do something that they just wanted you to do, I guess, or not do. Yeah, I think I think what's interesting is that when I talked to you at the time, you understood that what we were promising was deliverable. The API, like you were able to look at us with your perspective of knowing what's legit and what's not legit. You had an API, you had an API, you had a document that described. Well, let me right. let me interrupt and, and you because there's, pieces of it, there's but, this thing that I think was fundamental at the time, and I still am fighting this perception to this day. I'm not I'm not fighting your battles for you, but I think it's um it's something I keep inserting into these conversations about app.net is people think you're a Twitter competitor. And from our first conversation, I was like, uh, and reading the API, I'm like, you're not a Twitter competitor. You're a developer platform that where the developers don't have to recruit users. The users are, or they could, but it's a separate thing. You've paid users, a development platform aimed at developers, and you're a messaging service with all kinds of things attached. You're a developer platform with a social graph built in with all the services developers need. You know, here's the metaphor I came up with. And tell me if this, if this is something you tell people is, it's like you're building developers. You guys are like, we want to go, we want to, sorry, you're not, not building developers. So you're, you're providing services to building developers as if they want to go, people want to build office buildings and houses and tracts and whatever. And you're like, great, we've just taken this land and we put in sewer, water, gas, electric, and internet. And you can pay us, uh, and you don't even have to pay us to tap into it. When uh, you build a house and if people uh, want to live in the house, then they pay us for utility services. But otherwise, you can build all the houses for free. Land is free. There's an infinite amount of land and we're just running the utilities. That's our job here. And we can make money running off utilities. You guys just build the houses. People will move in. We're hoping we get enough people to build a real town and the townspeople are what's going to drive this. Is that too homey a metaphor for how it works? No, I mean, I, I think it's dead on. And as that metaphor shows, it's an inversion of, hey, we got to keep all the people in our town. They can't leave, right? Like it's, we just want people to tap into the pipes and use them as much as possible to drive value from them. And so the more value that you create, <laughs> the more value that we derive. I mean, yeah. one of the metaphors I used was thinking about the PC, right? Like the Win32 API or the, or the iOS API, right? Like these are building blocks that the more that is built on top of them, the more value it drives to the platform underneath it. And so when the PC came out, you had to be a programmer out of the gate. And the killer app when the PC first came out was actually basic itself, right? That's how Microsoft got started. The more developers built on a PC, the more valuable a PC became. And then by the time VisiCalc came out, 
it became a pretty straightforward proposition why you would want one of these devices. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that's the same with iOS, where if there was no app store, I'm not sure the iPhone would be the thing that it is now. Uh, Maybe it would. But that is where every single new app that comes on, every single bit of innovation that happens there actually makes the value of an iPhone go up incrementally. And so you end up... Go ahead. Well, there's this tricky thing, too, is that Apple is a closed environment, but at some level, it's weird because it's a hybrid, right? Is that you're subject to them as a gatekeeper. They take 30%. They reject apps, but that's the one side. They're closed in that sense. They're open in the sense of if you fit their criteria, you have an incredible marketplace you have access to that is, you know, that they're kind of funny because it's unfettered and fettered at the same time, but it has the effect for the right kind of apps of which there are apparently hundreds of thousands that it makes sense to put the time in because of the market that you are reaching essentially directly. And Apple mediates privacy and commerce and everything else, but it still feels like an open market compared to what app ecosystems were before on like BlackBerry or other devices that were truly closed where you really couldn't, they were, they were clamping it down because they had too much interest in what they were either selling or offering as a service to let third parties in at all. Exactly. I mean, and this is something I thought a lot about at my first company dealing with iTunes ecosystem and EdiQ and all that stuff, where when I realized that iTunes was a loss leader to sell more iPods and iPhones <laughs> and that the margins yes. of the iTunes music store are negative or dimin- – I think they're positive now, but for a while, like yeah, – at the time, yeah. That was, a, that was not a business. That was just a way to sell more iPods. So when that's the market leader, when the way they're monetizing is the margins via hardware sales instead of putting margins on music downloads – that's like that's pretty disruptive, man. Like I think one of the ways that Apple has kept a great stranglehold on the music space is um, is the fact that they're they're fighting an Amazonian uh, battle of like no margins or negative margins. So how do you break into that market, right? <laughs> yeah, and they and they but they were the first to create a market of that size, and so they got the advantage of defining all the terms, and then the market yes. exploded. I mean, that's, you know, the DRM was removed from music, not because the music labels, as you well know, they didn't suddenly decide DRM is a bad idea. They love DRM. They decided that Apple owning the digital music uh, download business was a terrible idea, and they'd rather get rid of DRM and increase the pool instead of letting Apple control the market. Yeah, I mean, the story I heard about how they cracked DRM was EMI really needed money, and <laughs> Apple offered them a really huge check. And that was how. They, remember the first label to do it was EMI. Yeah, I remember. Exa- I remember what happened, and I think it was like a few million bucks, just straight up. Here's some cash if you agree to to make your uh, catalog available non DRM. That was the story I heard. Apple's got well, yeah, good good points. The economy. It's nice sometimes when you have tens of billions of dollars <laughs> in the bank. But speaking of money, so your crowdfunding seemed to fit. So you're you're trying to do several things. You want to test interest. You want to get that core of really uh, involved early adopters who are power users, you want developers yes. in. So you had two tiers. It started with it was $50 for a regular user account and $100 for developer accounts. You set out to raise, is it half a million dollars was your Correct. target? And you raised over, it was over 800000 in the end. Uh, yeah, I think it closed. I have a screenshot somewhere. I think eight seventy or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah it, it so substantial. Well and so people, so whatever the naysayers were saying about it, and people are angry about it. You know, the people are angry. Hopefully, they didn't pay because why would you pay if you're angry? But exactly. the people, people like me, as I saw it, and I was like, huh, you know, learn more about it. I'm like, fifty dollars is a small price for me to pay to contribute to something that might transform what developers are given permission to. Because this is the thing: is like when you look at App.net as a Twitter competitor, you say, why would I pay? 
to help someone build a competitor to Twitter. When you look at it as a developer enabler, then it's, oh, I love independent developers. I mean, this is something that goes way back in the Mac world because the market was often small for certain products. But even today, I preferentially buy something from a company of two people than from 200 all other things being equal. And I'm always, you know, I pay the shareware fees back in the day, software where there's a, you don't have to pay. They ask for a donation where I pay that today. I want these small developers to succeed because they're responsive to what I want. It's, and they're responsive to their users because they don't have all kinds of other projects subsidizing it. And so when I look at app.net as this is a way that developers have a platform in which they're not beholden to Twitter, they're not beholden to Facebook or any other service, uh, Foursquare, anybody else who arises in the future, and they're not exactly beholden to you either because you made a series of promises even before the crowdfunding launched. What are you going to not do? I mean, I think what you're not doing is as important in some ways as what you are doing. Yeah, so we are trying to apply the hosting metaphor, right? Like that's the bright line way that I think about things. And so we're not going to restrict the export of data in the same way that it would be absurd for Dropbox to say you can't export your files. We're not going to restrict things like uh, your social graph or your post content or things like that. We're also never going to have advertising as a business model. And we made that a promise as a key provision that people being skeptical that, oh, you're just going to do all this and then you're going to end up the same as all these other guys, right? right? Like it was putting that stake in the ground uh, on a permanent basis that the whole point of this experiment is to not fall down the same slippery slope that everyone else does. So we are never going to be an advertising business, period, full stop, no qualifications, you know, no wiggle room. That's just not why we exist. Oh, I have a great metaphor. You just made me think of something. So Twitter, in the Twitter example, Twitter built this giant gleaming tower and they kept building floors and floors on it. Developers came in, they thought they'd bought condos and Twitter never really disabused them of the concept. So they put in new plumbing, they put in hardwood floors, they kept upgrading it, tricked it out. And then Twitter said, uh, you have to tear all that out. And by the way, um, you know, you're not allowed guests and uh, we're gonna start charging you rent. And the developer said, wait, we, we bought, didn't we buy? And like, no, look at your contract. You never bought anything. Yeah. We're letting you live here. Thanks for improving the thing. See you later. And, and that's sort of what that felt like. What you're saying is, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, uh, uh, we're, we're not even selling condos. We're just providing this service. You build your stuff on it. We're not going to be interfering with that. We're not going to come in later and tell you to tear out your plumbing. Right. And that's the metaphor of the hosting provider. It's not relying that Dalton Caldwell is a good guy or, <laughs> or he's a terrible guy, depending on who you, how you feel about him. <laughs> it's, it's more of just that this is a business that is going to optimize revenues and do what's right for its business. And there's lots of examples of businesses that are paid models that are reliable and predictable and don't do shady stuff to shut down core parts of why they exist. But there's right? one thing you have to do in order to do that is, and I talked about this with Jason Fried at 37 Signals as well, is you have to not have the super greed gene. Like you want to make money. This is a profitable business. You have investors that need a return on their investment. And um, you have, on the other hand, you have users you have to serve who are paying you money. So you have a commercial relationship with them. You obviously would like to make money. You're clearly in this on the capitalist side, but yes. you are not attempting to make the most possible return by turning every dial up to full that maximizes your return at the expense of what potential users or developers need. That's exactly right. And it's because the people that I admire most right now in the Valley are, are people like uh, Tom at GitHub and, and, and Drew at Dropbox and, you know, the, the Airbnb. It's people that built real businesses that um, did not try to extract every penny and let them, you know, and that have not 
they've been able to keep the promises of the platform from the beginning without having to do without one day having to put out the press release on Friday at 5 p.m. that oh by the way you know <laughs> we're we're going back on all that stuff that people like. You know what's funny is you mentioned those businesses, and I think a lot of people I don't know if, I don't know if listeners are having cognitive dissonance now they would think of something like Airbnb and say wait it's this huge business they adventure and they're worth X billions of dollars but they still only take a tiny I mean look they, they take a tiny percentage of the rental for what they facilitate they don't take the most they possibly could I look at a platform like Etsy which did uh, yeah. something like a billion dollars or very close to a billion dollars in gross revenue sales in 2012 and I haven't heard their numbers from this year but their run rate is fantastic and they take three and a half percent and 20 cents per listing and uh, three and a half percent of sales or Kickstarter with its five percent or all these platforms or in Dropbox still has its two gig free and you can get more free through referrals. They didn't get rid of that and they charge these flat rates which have improved over time. So all of these businesses actually even the ones that have scaled very very fast like Dropbox none of them have been have been untrue to their initial state. They've stayed right. true to it, even as even when they've been lucky enough to have mimetic, uh, you know, spread of of growth in this crazy hockey stick. They're still not suddenly like Dropbox didn't say everybody with free accounts, uh, you've got sixty days, or we delete all your files forever, <laughs> or you yeah. pay us twenty dollars a month. You know, if they did that, good God, can you imagine what would it happen? Would be bad. It would ruin the brand. And they can't now because they have Google and SkyDrive and, and so forth. There's actually an, an iCloud. You have uh, some kind of competition now that will keep them honest even if they got bought out and none of the original founders were involved. But but still, those companies you mentioned, I think in people's minds, those are very spe- uh, specific set you mentioned. In people's minds, those are venture back, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, no, they're, they're still that through line of uh, not – going not trying to maximize the greatest possible return at the expense of users. Right. And they have clear understandable business models and they did from the beginning, right? They they it was always clear what they were doing and why they were in business and they weren't like, "Oh, we just want to grow, we'll figure out how to monetize later." <laughs> right. right? That was never a property of those particular companies. Right. There was a straightforward, "Oh, I see why I could imagine paying for this. That's cool." And they made, they managed to keep that going even though they're now from a revenue perspective and evaluation perspective, very large, successful companies. Well, we're at this very interesting inflection point for you guys now, too, because you started with the campaign where you know you did this crowdfunding approach. You uh, achieved more than your goals, you know, almost $900,000, and that resulted in thousands of users, a good chunk of which were developers who wanted to get the API and wanted to get in early on testing it out um, to see what they could do. You've scaled now over several months. You've gone from thousands to uh, – it's over 30,000 at the time we recorded this, I think. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it's 32,000. And I should, and so here's the, um, no, uh, listeners, I have to tell you the conceit here is we recorded this before app.net opened up its free tier, which just happened very recently. So we don't know what people said. It's possible everybody hates Dalton now, or everyone loves him. <laughs> uh, there's been a massive, you know, who knows what's going on. They've been bought out by Twitter. We don't know what happened. Unlikely. Uh, last yeah, part. I don't think that's very likely. Very unlikely to happen. Uh, maybe there's life on Mars. We don't know. It's the future we're talking to. <laughs> but so we're, so at the point we're talking, 32,000 users, all of them paying. You, you changed your pricing. So it was originally $50 a year, and then you added the it's $6 a month or $36 a year, and you gave us early adopters an extended time on our subscription. So 32,000 people all paying. And you've always said, I mean, A, this is an alpha. Yes. B, you've always said, we're taking this slow because we don't want to outscale, outstrip your ability to support the users that are there, even in this stage. Mm-hmm. Now you offer free. How do you reconcile this free tier with the with the paid tier and what users are going to get from each. Sure. So in my mind, in my impression, I very intentionally in my announcement blog post for app.net mentioned Dropbox and GitHub as 
examples of companies that had the properties that I thought that this could be. And the reason was those are freemium companies, right? Right. <laughs> those, those are not, you know, if the things that I would have picked to mention in that blog post would have been paid only companies <laughs> out of the gate, then I think you could rightfully be like, wait, what's going on here, man? Um, and we've talked a lot about freemium on this podcast, episode number two with Chris Anderson. And, you know, his book Free, he said, if I'd written it just a little bit later, we would have called it freemium because it wasn't about free. It was about free as a tool to get people to pay for services when they reach a certain level. That's correct. The property to me of a, of a good service is that you only pay for it if you get value from it, Right. The last thing you want to do is to charge a bunch of people. They're like, oh, this is useless. That is not one of the goals of app.net. Maybe that's why some of the people didn't like it. It's like, why should I pay it? Maybe I don't know if it's going to be good or not. Okay, that's a, that's a fair point. So you don't have to pay. So being able to offer that is really important. And so the reason the timing has been the way it is, is that we wanted to take the mindful time to make the API and platform ready and to let third-party developers catch up so that there is a there there, and so that we actually could figure out what was going to be in the free tier versus the paid tier, which I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, if you would have asked me six months ago, I would say, I have no idea what is in what tier, but we're going to figure it out now with, with our early users. I should point out, too, that you started with a service that seemed very Twitter-like because the initial APIs were Twitter-like things. It was you know followers and following and you know, 256 character messages instead of 140 and so forth. But then you've added over time, and this is maybe the maturity you're talking about that you reached here, is you added private messaging, which unlike Twitter is person-to-person, this is multiple-person private messaging or can be implemented that way. You added not very long ago the storage API. So everyone gets, is it 10 gigabytes? Is that right? Uh, 20, 20 gigabytes 20, 20 for gigabytes. member tier accounts. Yeah, yeah, because you got paid users, they get 20 gigabytes. And as we know, Amazon and other hosting services for storage make that, uh, even if everyone stored 20 gigabytes, it's a very small price to pay now. So you can do that easily. And then developers now have a storage thing separate from Dropbox, not to criticize that model, but an app.net developer doesn't need to assume people have Dropbox or any other storage system system on the cloud, they can simply use the app.net storage API and know that all the other clients that people use with app.net can reach it. And uh, this client on any platform that uses app.net can reach it. So the API has gotten richer. So now you're less, it's become clearer and clearer. You're less and less like Twitter. I think some people have asked me when I've mentioned some of these things, they said, are they getting diffuse? Like, isn't this blurring the message? And I said, no, I knew these guys, even you never said anything about storage. But I always said from the beginning, this is a messaging service. This is a robust messaging service with a social graph, and they're going to build out – there's no limit for what you do. They're going to build out everything that developers need on the back end, whatever that is. And yes. over time, I thought it would look less like Twitter, and it does. So you've reached that point where you've got a lot of services for developers. It's richer than the, just the Twitter-ish universe. And this is where you hit and said, this is the time to go with the free tier? Yeah, that's right. Well. As well as having an ecosystem built out. But, but on that point, um, you're right. The, the messaging API, for instance, we didn't want to just do some lame, you know, DM-like implementation uh, that's super constrained. We took three months of going through internal iterations of meeting with devs, of looking at every API that we've seen before that, that can do messaging to multiple recipients. We wanted to make sure that the API could support building you could build a group messaging app, you know, like WhatsApp or iMessage or BBM or whatever. Like we wanted to make sure you could build a full-fledged thing like that 
from the messaging API. We wanted to make sure you could build something that looks like like a Yammer or HipChat or a collaborative, kind of like a lightweight workplace collaboration thing. We wanted to make sure the API was powerful enough for devs to build things like that. We also wanted devs to be able to do Internet of Things-like applications. Mm -hmm. So you could easily have Raspberry Pis send you notifications or like, you know, uh, your Lockatron send you a notification or your, your Nest to send you a notification. Um, I think it's a critical thing that gets overlooked about what you're doing that I think, I don't think, I don't want to say nobody understands it. I'm not trying to be conceited, but it's more like, I don't think it comes up again because of that confusion with Twitter competition is one of the things you do is you let any developer use your API in any software or hardware where Twitter strictly controls interaction between Twitter and whatever. So I can't take Twitter messages and do something with them. I may be able to post in one app to multiple places, but even that, the new Twitter API and the rules of usage are very restrictive. Correct. So there are only certain things I can do in presentation, whatever. You have no rules over that. I can have a Raspberry Pi and do this. I could have, if I wanted... um BB Edit, for instance, on the Mac, they could add a Dropbox connection. They could add an ADN connection. And they could exactly. say, if you're an app.net user, uh, log in here and you can choose to store all your backups of uh, BB Edit files there. Or you can choose to do an IRC in a side window in BB Edit if they want to do something crazy like that through uh, app.net. But there's no limitation. So app.net becomes an extension to anything for people who have an account there rather than being a hermetic world of messaging in a window that's one kind of thing. Exactly. We don't care that we can't show ads. We don't care that you can export your data. We, the more you use it and the more data you have in your bucket, the more money we make. Right, like and that's, anybody can, and you can read, and you can. I can have an app.net data that is a Dropbox connector, and it yes. runs stuff in and out of Dropbox, and you're not going to stop that. Nope. You don't care because that's between me and the developer, and I've paid you for my account. Yes, where where it's a hosting provider. Think about it. What could you do? I know it's so a, funny with that, an AWS account. Oh, you want to build an e-commerce site? Cool. Right. Knock yourself out. You want to build a you know a blogging engine? Cool. Knock yourself out. Like there's no right. You guys are much more like Amazon Web Services than you are like Twitter. But I think that the, there is a misperception. Let's pause to thank one of our sponsors. Repost, R-I-P-O-S-T-E, is an iOS client for App.net, the new service for microblogging, private messaging, and more. Repost was built from the ground up for the unique set of features found at App.net. You use a set of intuitive gestures to navigate no matter what screen you're viewing, even when you're looking at a website. A full-screen timeline makes it easy to follow the long conversations and long messages that App.net facilitates. The app has full voiceover support to speak every feature on every screen, making it fully accessible for the visually impaired. Repost is companionable, connecting with other complementary apps and services like Instapaper, Pinboard, Dropler, and Text Expander, among others, and it has a one-click tap on login screens to switch to one password. Repost is free on the App Store. Search for Repost or visit the website at repostapp.net. You'll find a link on the episode page, too. Thank you, Repost. Now back to the podcast. There's also one other thing before we get sure. more into the free tier is something that just happened, too, is TapBots, which makes the great TweetBot client for uh, Mac OS X and iOS. They have NetBot for iOS. It's a great piece of software, and you've got a bunch of iOS clients from developers. They decided after months of selling it, sales were low because there's only a finite audience. There's 32,000 paying users at the point we're recording this. They went free because you did this other thing, which is you're providing incentives to developers based on usage and the ratings that users who use the software get. At the time we're talking about this, it's a $20,000 a month pool. And TapBots just got this huge wave of anger from people who are 
seemingly thinking that a small pool is getting divided smaller and that NetBots, it, NetBot will steal money from other developers be, through going free first. Where I'm thinking 32000 was the base level. That's where we're at. You need for a service like this to work ultimately. You have to have millions of users. But there's all this anger at, at TapBots for taking this move. Did you follow that or have you tried to stay out of the fray? I've tried to stay out of the fray about specific developers because because this is an open platform, <laughs> as long as developers do not violate the terms of service, it would be incredibly ironic and ter- <laughs> it'd be it'd be pretty terrible if I started getting involved in debating how developers are are using the platform, right? Like the whole point we're here is so that developers can make their own choices about what the UI should do or what features they have or don't have. They're experimenting in the marketplace. Right. And as long as they follow, you know, there are developer terms of service, there's things you shouldn't do, you know, those exist and they're documented. But if you draw, you know, it's like with Amazon Web Services, if you just go light up a a spam farm and start sending out unsolicited (laughs) email, they will shut you down, which is their right to do so. But yeah. if you stay between the lines, that's why we're here, right? This is the experiment. You know, this is this is the point of it is to let developers do what they want to do. And the goal of the developer incentive program was the thing that made this seem so crazy to me from where I was sitting and what would make me the most discouraged is we would either need a bunch of apps out of the gate building on the API or we would need a bunch of users that would attract developers, mm-hmm. right? You need one of those two things. And because if you can get those things going, right, the more users they are, the more attractive it becomes to developers. And the more interesting use cases there are with an app.net app, like the example you said, if you could drop it into to your text editor or you could do screenshot sharing, like the more like nifty things you could do with the account, the more attractive it becomes to end users. If you can get that virtuous cycle going where there's constantly new people that have demand for, for new interesting things. And if people, if the developers don't believe you're going to pull the rug out from under their feet, yes. as when, if you can, you've built some of that trust already and the trust will be built up over time as you continue to do consistently what you're saying. But if they know, if I put in the, you know, X hundreds of hours to integrate this or even dozens, you know, in some simple cases into my app and make it an option along with Dropbox and other kinds of services, if I do this, this is still going to be valid. You've got that's one side is the not being restricted by the host you, but the other is that user base. As you need, they also say like, why would I build this in? And that's what Netbot came out. I mean, the Tapbots came out with Netbot early on because they wanted to tie into this platform. They already had Tweetbot. They could reuse some code, and and it was easy for them to experiment with what this would look like. But now there was sort of this point. You hit not a wall, but there's certain you know growth has slowed a little bit. Yes, I have some great conversations on there. Some of the people who I have the best conversations with on the internet. We are all together in these groups on ADN and sometimes we talk on Twitter and a lot of times because of the better threading and the better, the longer character count, we talk on app.net. But so we hit that point, right? And there's conversation, there's people, but so you're the free tier, as I say, conceit is you've, in when people are listening to this, you've already launched it, but so how does the free tier work? What limits did you put on it to not break that paid version that you want to have be the the core of where revenue comes from? That's correct. I mean, the people seem to think that the point of the paid service was to keep people out that we didn't like when instead it was to have a coherent business model. (laughs) Um, And so in this case, the free tier is a, is a way to make it accessible for people to try things out. And that if you get a lot of value from it, a good freemium service lets you get, it creates the opportunity to pay when you get tremendous value. So, Mm -hmm. so to be very concrete, the limitations are the amount of file storage you have, Right? So if you want to log in and try something out, 
hey, go nuts. Everything works. You get the full unadulterated experience. But if you actually started moving around lots of files and you had a lot of photos or a lot of videos, you'll start to notice that there's a reason to upgrade. And uh, so, yeah, so the paid accounts right now have 20 gigs of storage. And the free accounts, honestly, I'm still nailing down that number. I think we're going to ship with 250 megs, but this may be a continuity error because I don't know if that's actually... That's right. <laughs> Listeners, hey, in the future, I'll put it in the show notes. In the future. The yeah, so, so there will be you know a different size bucket of storage, which makes sense. Additionally, file size. Um, the, the free tier, I think we're going to have a 10 megabyte limit. So it's great for photos and what have you in your bucket. But if you want to you know, use it for collaboration purposes, like the using private messages to push files around or to do heavy-duty things, the pay tier has a 150 meg limit, which we may actually make bigger. So that's, that's a difference between the two. But hey, if you, if you just want to use it for photos, 10, 10 megs is great. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing we're doing, which is, is the one that I have the least amount of data on, so I'll see how it goes, is we're going to put a limitation on the amount of accounts that you can follow. Right. And the idea there is that if you look at the data of most social services, the vast majority of users don't have a lot of friends slash follow a lot of people, right? It's a power law. And the lightweight users, it's good to have them there. It's good to have them participating. And perhaps they're lurking on these various services. But those accounts tend to not follow slash friend slash whatever metaphor you want to use, depending on the exact service, that many people. They're either, there is usually with a very small group or they're there for the broadcast part. That's correct. In this case, if you're there's not a limit on the number of people that can follow you. So if you're really, really interesting, I suppose you could broadcast <laughs> still. Um, but oh, so I can have a free I can have a free account and have a million followers, and that's cool. Yes. But I can only follow uh, a very small number of people as a free user. That's correct, and it's effectively the idea there is that there's the whole follow back spam phenomena. If you're mm-hmm. familiar with, and that's not great. That's not something that I necessarily think the network is ready for at this point of having people go in and follow 10,000 people to try to get followbacks. Right. And they could do it, but they have to pay for it. If they want to pay $36 a year, they could set up an account and follow a bazillion people, right? That is correct. It just, and then, it makes but then it, they're paying you. <laughs> yes, that's right. Then they're paying, you know, it, it, it disincentivizes how a lot of these spam farms get volume. And I should say right now, and that's one of the wonderful things about app.net is it's quiet right now on the messaging front because people, uh, whatever, between the combination of having to pay and whatever fraud limits you have in there, I don't get spam. I don't get, twi- you know, uh, there's no app.net bots that I'm aware of that are bugging me yet. And, um, you know, ostensibly with the growth in users, it will get some of that or more of that. But I still think that your approach, especially this one, will limit that. It'll, it'll um, mitigate it and make it easier to spot those weird anomalies. That's correct. And actually, while I'm thinking about it, I will give you something early that I haven't even talked about in our podcast, or we're not even going to announce, but we're going to start talking about it later. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to also add a billing API so that this doesn't help if you're in the App Store because Apple has limitations on all this. But imagine you have a web application. On the app.net OAuth dialog, a user could tack on a one-time or recurring payment Oh. Yeah. So that's a way that money flows through the service that is useful for having free accounts around. Mm-hmm. Because perhaps, you know, perhaps you're a really lightweight user, but there's this really cool, you know, screenshot sharing app or something you want to have. Uh, we're going to make it very, very, very easy in the OAuth dialogue to be able to, to charge money, basically. That's one of the things that the platform does, right? We take people's credit cards and we do recurring billing and we deal with 
all of the hairy stuff around that. So it's like an in-app purchase, essentially? Yes, that is what the in- in-app.net yeah. purchase, as it were. <laughs> yes, and I know that's not going to fly in the App Store. We're not going to even try, but yeah, yeah. But but there's like you know there's there's a wide variety of things that have worked, and not to digress, but like one of the reasons I think the magazine works as an experiment is that the APIs and the user flow are really really good to pay for content, right. and on the web, micropayments never really got off. So we're not going to single-handedly solve micropayments, but I do think there could be much better tooling to do something that looks like in-app purchase uh, outside of the app store. I think So that'll I, work. So free, free tier will work with that. And then what about, um, yes. I know something developers have talked about too, is they'd like to be able to sign people up for app.net inside the app. So if I get the free copy of NetBot and maybe they'll, you know, at some point they can, it's not free forever. The people who've downloaded it to get it free forever, but they can charge for it again. But let's yes. say I get, have the free, they had 100,000 plus downloads of NetBot. There's only 32,000 Pretty funny, right? users. We talk, yeah. So there's people who are waiting. They got it in pre- preparation for something that might happen in the future. I go there and I say, oh, I, oh what do I do here? Is that uh, on your, your public roadmap about um, letting developers let people sign up either directly or having some simple pass through? Yes, but I don't know the time frame. I've been pretty earnest that this has been an experiment, I guess. So you can see that we've been patient the past six months to not just frantically try to throw more users in or, or, or launch. Like We're trying to do things mindfully. Mm-hmm. So what will be interesting to see is how the free tier goes out of the gate and what the net effect is. And assuming, let's just say we got it exactly right and all the incentives are correct and the ratio of free to paid, et cetera, et cetera, is good then I anticipate that, yes, we will ramp up accessibility a lot. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's something we're going to learn that implies that uh, maybe we should tweak a few more things before things like uh, a registration API become available. But from a cons- Well, then, the, then you have to deal with the iOS thing too, is you'd have to allow developers to give Apple 30% if you s- let people sign up from inside an iOS app, yes. which is possible, I'm sure. It is possible. But it's still it's another but not a challenge, and you know because that's what developers. It seems to me you've got multiple ways to get people into this, and you're talking about the free tier. Let's if there's with in-app style purchasing, that's one way to get people to sign up because it may facilitate what they're doing with another product. There's um, people signing up for the Twitter-like functionality they can get from existing yes. uh, from the website or from existing apps, and then you have the developers saying, "I've come up with this product. The glue for this product is." Uh, app.net and you need to sign up for an account. You can get a free account and you can try our product. And uh, if you want to do these things with our product, you need to pay these guys. But it, to the user, it's I'm working with an app and I am paying through the app for a thing. And then I get this email that says, hey, you've just bought an account for app.net for this program. But did you know there's a thousand other things you can do with it as well? Exactly. And Honestly, knowing that we have all those levers we can turn is what's caused us to be patient on growth, right? This is why we have not been antsy inside is it's because I feel like companies are, are kind of like fractals uh, or, or, uh, or like crystals where the very early structure and the very early decisions you make end up having a huge impact on what it looks like two or three years down the road. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. these, these little tiny things that you decide to do where you cut a corner here or you don't do that end up, once you get to scale, being impossible to change, right? Like character count or something, right? Or if we made the messaging API work differently and it got adoption, we couldn't just be like, oh man, we screwed that up. So we've been trying to use this time before focusing on scale to try to get an API that is good (laughs) and that is buildable upon and that we know we can live with for a long time, right? And that has the properties that we need. You know, at this point, the file API has now been shipped in all these clients. NetBot shipped it. Uh, Felix shipped it. 
we've already seen all these new APIs go through multiple iterations mm -hmm. of seeing real human beings ship production quality software using them, right? And that makes us feel way better than shooting from the hip, so to speak, and trying to do growth at the same time as getting the original crystalline structure uh, correct. Well, I think you've got so many different layers of which this hits, and, and starting with the notion that you wanted to reach out and use crowdfunding as a mechanism both to raise some funds but also to gauge interest, to keep the developers involved as the API has been involved, to keep pushing out updates and sort of keep people in the notion that even though this is an alpha, there's things coming and that this isn't just a Twitter competitor and now hitting the point where I think some people thought you were never going to offer free users. I think, I don't think it was a secret, but I think it was more like it didn't seem consonant with what they expected you were doing as opposed to why what do you, your Why do you think was. that is? Why do you think, like, is it a projection? Like, I, I ask, I, that's an honest question. Like, I try to understand why all these things are, uh, are assumptions, but they are out there. I'm just, what, what is your perspective? I think there are two different things. One is because you came out of the gate charging for service and never said anything about free, people figured you might be either too greedy or too oriented towards money to say you'd ever do anything for free. And the other was, I think that because of the, um, the scale issue, it may have been, um, and it was part of what you were messaging too, is you wanted to get up to a certain scale. You wanted to go slow that people thought a free tier would accelerate it so rapidly uh, and maybe also irritate people who paid early on that you wouldn't adopt it and you'd stick blindly to only having paid users. But I think if you read the tea leaves from the beginning, it was clear. I think people keep forgetting the alpha label. We've talked about it through this podcast is it says alpha and it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means you're still experimenting with models. And, you know, at some point you're gonna have to go to beta and then production. And at this stage, the idea that what you were doing with user accounts was the last thing. I'll still, I know this is something you wouldn't talk about now, I'm sure, but you know, $36 a year, I'm sure it's going to be cheaper. Like I know some of the costs of scaling and issues. I wouldn't be surprised if you're able to get this down for the paid tier down to the, you know, 15 to $18 level within a year or six months, because it'll make sense at that point to have the right kind of volume that you'd rather be cheaper, get more people at the paid tier and sell add-on services like 100 gigabytes of storage attached as opposed to putting everyone in the same container. And at that point, people once again say, wait a minute, they always said this would be $50. And then it was $36. Like, no, they never said it was always going to be $50. They never <laughs> said that. They said this is what it costs now both to run the service and to prevent having so many users you couldn't handle it. And so I think there's that, that's, that's my answer. I think you set up... You didn't set up expectations, but people built the expectations in their head of what you were saying. That's that's a good explanation. I mean, I yeah, I. What's been fascinating to be me in this is that <laughs> I really have been blogging, and we even have our own official podcast where I try to do everything I can to say what's going on um, in my head and try to have first party information so that it's not always filtered through the press. Mm -hmm. But it's still fascinating, just the variations of strange things that get. Of, of assumptions that get made or, or what have you that are projected onto me. Um, and so even though I am blogging as much as I am and doing the podcast, it still, it still sometimes feels, uh, I guess, frustrating is the word, but uh, <laughs> you know, well, it, it feels hard. Every time people make a choice in a business that people like what the business or product does, you get anger. That's why people are angry at Apple. I mean, Marco wrote this essay for the magazine called Anti-Apple Anger in which he, just, he picked apart 
that people may be mad at Apple because it doesn't let them do things that Apple doesn't want to let them do, whether rightly or wrongly. And, and, and Android often does. And that's the same thing, uh, 37 Signals, their platform, Jason Fried was saying, there's stuff people want us to do. And we just want to be a little better than email is their motto. And people are like, well, why don't you do this and that and that? And if you don't do that thing because the product is already useful enough to them and they need this extra thing and you won't do it and for whatever reason and probably rightly, but it's your business and you don't think it's something that would benefit either the business or the customers. People get mad about that because they value what you're doing so highly, they don't want to switch. And I think that's the thing. It does so much of what they want and it doesn't do this one thing or maybe several things. That's where the anger comes from, I, th- I would argue. I think so. I mean, I, I'm st- – that's a that's a very rational explanation. So I'll, well, I'll. so <laughs> the point. So now talking to the future again. So we'll see what people when you listen, dear listeners, read the blogs and see what people said about this free tier. But the thing I know is I'm going to log on on uh, Monday, uh, a couple of days after we record this, and I'm going to see thousands and thousands, or maybe hundreds of thousands of new people come on when Netbot went oh, free. I had I dozens and that. dozens. Yes. Um, the way we're going to roll this out is via the invitation system on purpose, right? Uh, I already, I already got that? I had no, I had three invitations which I uh, handed out recently when I noticed I had them for a month's free service. So that's going to be transmuted into free accounts, bingo, or free so, tier accounts. Yeah, the, the 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 invite system that we built was our um, hiding it in plain sight free tier experiment. Yes. <laughs> yes. So anyone that was on the thirty day free trial is grandfathered in and will magically be on the free tier, so that. They don't have to do anything, but that's how we tested um, that this was actually going to work out of the gate. And that's how we actually tested data about how is the invite system going to work. And the reason we're doing this is that I think it would overwhelm everything um, and people would be rightfully annoyed if 100,000 people signed up in a day, right? I don't know if that's the best idea. <laughs> well, you know you know the concept of eternal September, I'm presuming. Yes, we talked yeah. about that before. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I mean, so I'll tell listeners, and I'll put a link in. I wrote an essay about this, I think, in the 90s when AOL uh, opened its gateways to Usenet. The definition comes back to every September-ish when people came to college back in the olden days, and you get your computer account on mainframe systems and so forth, you get this flood of newbies onto Usenet. And so every September, all the people been on Usenet, either upper-class people or uh, people in academic institutions, go, oh, no, it's September again. we got to train all these bozos. And within a few weeks, it would die down, and people would get tired of it, or they'd become, uh, they'd be beaten into submission, and they'd, they'd adhere to the rules, or start alt.groups. Yeah. And so what happened with AOL is AOL said, we're going to open this gateway between AOL and Usenet news groups, and anyone will be able to post and read. And what happened is every day was September forever. It was eternal September, and everyone had to learn the rules every day, and it made Usenet much less useful for years and years until it sort of faded from importance and other things took its place. Um, and that's what you're worried about. The eternal September effect is you're going to friends of friends will get on first. And yes. Then like we know, we know where fully. we want to be in the future and we know we are where we are now, but we want to be as mindful as possible about getting between here and there. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you want to do it with intention and with thoughtfulness um, because yeah, dumping, a whole bunch of people really fast is rarely um, – there's some, there's some downsides. But and conceivably, you have, you have a few thousand users who are active every day, if I remember what the stats are. So conceivably, there could be tens of thousands of people coming on yes. uh, initially in the first week or so. And then are you, you'll tear this out. Will you give us more invitations? Or, yes, exactly. Uh, and then eventually open it up so anyone can come and sign up. Yes. that's The, the idea is just for us to be able to, um, to have our, our, our hand on the till um, to make sure that – 
right. everything looks good and that, that everything works properly. And and again, if people <laughs> are impatient, they could always sign up through the paid through the front page. Right, so they, we, could pay, they could pay for $6. They could do a month. And then yeah, wait, $5, can they, yes. Can, or $5, I'm sorry. Can they convert their accounts? If you have a paid account, can you convert to free or is it only One Direction? Uh, set up a new yes, account? you can. You can okay, downgrade. Ultimately. Yes. So so this is the thing. So you'll go, you'll have 32000 and then it'll be 50000 then then 100000 then 200000 over a period, if, if all goes well, over a period of some weeks and maybe even into months, maybe not months for that top number though, given the curve you're talking about. Um, but we're not going to go from 30000 to a million um, uh, a few days after we record this podcast. Yeah, that that is impossible, right? Like <laughs> because right. it's through invitation right. system. Numerically impossible. Right. Yeah. Although again, that's that thing is the pay, the utility of of the service we're going to all pe- all of us who are on here we're all going to be, you know, I went on Twitter the other day and said I've got three f- invites for a month free of ADN I got instant takers. I'll do the same thing. I'll probably go to specific people and make sure they get signed up. But we'll all go out like we used to do with Gmail invites and people did with Pinterest and other things. You'll get that crowd of people on and some percentage of them will spend some time and they go, hey, you know, this is actually a neat alternative to Twitter or whatever they're using at the moment, um, whatever's developed right now. Have and you checked out Patter? Paying. I should mention that. Have you checked out Patter? I don't know Patter. So Patter is an app.net app built on the messaging infrastructure. Um, so it looks nothing like microblogging. Do you know what it looks like is uh, AOL chat rooms. Um, oh, it, it looks like IRC. And so you can use it. I'll send you a link. Looks nothing – there's no microblogging. There's no followers or following. Is it hash? Does it use hashtags? Uh, there's different rooms that you can join. Fascinating. Um, and you could go in there and like hang out and talk to people. That's a totally different – that's a radically different use case that bears no superficial resemblance to microblogging. Um, right. This is – you're about to hit the Cambrian explosion is what I keep thinking is that you have enough different things. Once you have enough users up there that more developers who have – Ideas that are not as easily explained or as directly explained as this is like Twitter, but then you're suddenly going to have all these strange creepy crawlies with different legs wiggling around and, and, exactly. they, and won't, they won't resemble each other. And what I'm thinking about – and that's also why the freaking name is app.net for God's sake. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I constantly – oh, man, I get that a People lot. People are like, why would you have a ter- – the terrible name. Why would you call it app.net? Because it's not about you. It's not about app.net. It's about the developers. Right, and we don't want to enforce consistent branding because inherently the things people build won't be consistent. Right, like these apps won't look anything like if you're building something that ties in BB Edit to something else, and there's also this thing that looks like an AOL chat room, and there's also you know like those are intentionally totally disjoint applications. And App.net is the OAuth identity service provider that mm-hmm. lets you log into those things. But that's it from a branding perspective, right? Because branding is actually a way a lot of these companies enforce control, right? Like you want. App developers should want to have their own branding, right? Users should want to download NetBot as the brand and not just be like, oh, yeah, I guess this is yet another app.net client. I would argue that's putting more power in the control of developers. Well, I promised listeners at the outset that I would explain why you guys fit into this rubric. And I think over this period of time we have is that it's not just the crowdfunding approach. It's not just the facilitation approach. It's it's your goal is to, as I as I am with this podcast to, to inspire people to, is to connect developers with their audience. You're trying to serve as a, a facilitator, not an owner and not a gatekeeper and not a and not a way to prohibit these connections. You are trying to connect people up and give developers a market. Right. And if you take for granted, imagine that you had all of your, your photo data in a bucket and you had all of your social graph that you can move around. I think it increases the likelihood that you'll try out new software and want to buy new software and buy new integrations. Like I, I would argue this is going to increase 
the usefulness of new stuff that comes out that developers build. There was a time when people were saying it would be ridiculous to add Dropbox to an app because people had to get accounts. And now Dropbox is integrated in, you know, a thousand different things. They just upgraded their API to provide even, you know, a, a more direct form of integration. And I think, um, you know, your, your task now is to, is to get the users up to a level that it's makes sense for developers. But your goal is to, you know, your goal is aligned there is the more users are on your system, the better you folks do and the better all the developers do as a result. It's like Apple handing out the billion dollar checks to developers. Whether they, they're up to eight billion dollars, I think they've paid out to developers from the App Store. Now at last count, and uh, clearly that's where your interests lie too. That's that's exactly right, and that's that was the goal here: is can we design a business model and structure that has the correctly aligned incentives? And that's it's this economic argument that's been the big experiment, and, and it's the one that remains to be seen. I'm still not sure <laughs> if it'll work, but that's <laughs> but that's why we're here. It's not that oh man, the world really needs another thing that looks like this other thing, and it's paid right. Like that's not that was not the goal. The that's goal right. was to was to rethink the business models of of social APIs. Well, thanks for taking the time to walk through all this. I think it's fascinating. And I think even people listening who are not software developers, people used to listen to Marco Arment's build and analyze because of the way he thought about problems, not because they sat down and they programmed. And I think the same here is the way you're approaching this as sort of a neutral host solution is something I hope we see more of. And, and thank you for being on the podcast to take time to explain it. Thanks so much, Glenn. I, I really appreciate it. Great to have you. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash newdisruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Music